Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievements Audio Vault. I'm Alice Winkler. Just as hydrogen and oxygen in the right combination create something altogether new, or hazelnuts and chocolate if you prefer a Nutella metaphor, the two men we have in this week's episode turned the world upside down when they got together. In this episode, Steve Jobs and Tony Fidel. They spoke to the Academy decades apart, and yet their paths merged at one pivotal point in time into a single story, the story of the iPod and the iPhone. So first to Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, of course, who was 26 years old when he was inducted into the Academy of Achievement. It was 1982. At the Academy's annual summit, Jobs gave a couple of short, extemporaneous talks to a room full of promising young high school students. One of the things that that tends to run through some of the things that people here have talked about is uh, innovation and creativity. And if you really brought, have you ever thought about what it is to be intelligent? Probably some of you have. Right, because you meet your friend and he's pretty dumb and maybe you think you're smarter and you wonder what the difference is. <laughs> and and I, I've thought about this a little bit myself. And, and one of the things is, it seems to me a lot, of it's the, a lot of it's memory, but a lot of it's the ability to sort of zoom out like you're in a city and you could look at the whole thing from about the 80th floor down at the city. And while other people are trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B reading these stupid little maps, you can just see it all out in front of you. You can see the whole thing. And you can make connections that just seem obvious because you can see the whole thing. That's why bright people feel guilty a lot because they come up with stuff that they just say, hey, look at this. And other people give them these dumb awards and they feel funny. (laughs) Um, Tony Fidel was only 13 in 1982. And he wasn't in the room that day. But he could have been. Fidel had the kind of intelligence Steve Jobs was talking about. He was already a budding computer and design genius and an ambitious entrepreneur. He couldn't yet take in a whole city from Steve Jobs' proverbial 80th floor. But he was on his way up there. It would be almost 20 years before the two men would meet. Now, a lot of people know a lot about Steve Jobs, so I'm not going to retell his whole story. But most people outside of the tech world don't know much, if anything, about Tony Fidel, which is kind of strange considering many of you are listening to this podcast on an iPhone, a device he created. 
And before the advent of the smartphone, you probably played all your music on an iPod, another of his devices. You may even have your home hooked up to a Nest thermostat if you're energy conscious. That one's also a Tony Fidel invention. So most of this episode will be devoted to telling you Tony Fidel's story, with some input and context provided by Steve Jobs decades before they even met. I know it sounds a little like I'm talking about time travel, but honestly, their stories are so intertwined that it actually makes sense. Here then is Tony Fidel talking to journalist Gail Eichenthal in early 2016 about how his climb to the 80th floor began at his grandpa John's knee. He was a superintendent of the Hamtramck School District right outside or inside of Detroit. And he also taught special ed kids. But also, because of the Depression era, he also learned how to do everything himself. Or his father and his grandfather taught him how to build things and create things because you had to be very, how can I say, you had to be able to use your hands and be very industrious, especially in Detroit, right? That was what the city was all about. And he, that, that same training that he did, he did for my brother and I and taught us a lot about how to build things just when we were four years old, five years old. What did you guys build? Well, it started out really simply, you know, uh, we would just watch. You know, and we'd hand him tools and he'd learn stuff. And then we got up to building birdhouses. And then we get to repairing bicycles and then lawnmowers and building a soapbox derby car and then repairing houses for, you know, parts of the house for him, then for our parents, then for our relatives and our friends down the street. So it just kind of unfolded. He put it to me very clearly, which was, look, a human made this. A human can repair it and make it better. So was don't worry about those things, like go and learn about them. We can take them apart, put them back together, and it builds confidence. So it doesn't, it's not like there's this some entity over in some part of the world building things and it's a special place. No, you can do it yourself. And that's what's so empowering. Fidel's grandfather was one direct influence on his career, but he also developed an unusual outlook on the world from his family's life on the move. His dad was head of sales for Levi's Jeans, and so almost every year they moved to a new part of the country. Fidel said that caused him to develop an outsider's view and the eye of a detached observer. Somehow those factors helped give him an edge, he says, when it came to engineering and computers. 1980 is when I took my first uh, summer school course. And I was learning on bubble cards with pencils and, 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 and paper where we'd actually feed that in the machine. We didn't even have monitors. We had paper printouts. And so I learned that and I got hooked. So engineering was always along the route and it was just another tool to go with all the things my grandfather had taught me. right? And then over time, you start to learn, well, when I'm building something, what do I want it to look like? And so that process of, de- uh, of learning about design unfolded by doing, right? And then you're like, wait a second, I want to make it better. I want to make it better. And you start asking a lot of questions. And the observer in me would step back and go, what are we really trying to do? So the design really happened between blossoming through my mom, um, who was actually, she loved to do interior design and all the time because we were moving houses. She would have to redecorate each time, and I'd watch that process. And much to the chagrin of my mom, my grandfather would try to fix up some of the houses, and he wouldn't do it in a very nice way. It was always the most practical way, but it wasn't necessarily the most beautiful way. And you could see this contention between my grandfather and my mother going, 
it works. It doesn't look good. It works. It doesn't look good. And so that was really embedded in me. And I was, you know, I used that to, to, to think about as I was building things. Well, let's make it look good, too. Like most of the titans of the modern tech era, Steve Jobs had a similar story about his first exposure to computers. During his speech to young students in 1982, he recounted a conversation he'd just had with a kid named Ralph about the early days. My first experience with a computer was having to take all these, type out a program and take all these cards to a computer center, and half an hour later you'd get the result, and it was, it was, it was prehistoric compared to the way it is now. And Ralph didn't understand this at all. And it really uh, signaled that the real optimism of youth is that they don't understand how bad it used to be. And that they, they really take what the, the accomplishments of the last generation for granted, and they're still not happy. And so if there's one thing that, that I uh, wish is that all the, the sort of God bless America stuff you're hearing from us doesn't dull you into complacency with the way things are, and that you retain that idealism, and you retain that, that feeling that the way things are isn't good enough, because you're all citizens of the world, and a world that desperately needs your idealism, and desperately needs uh, your help. No doubt, part of Steve Jobs and Tony Fidel's success came from the fact that they were able to retain that idealism, even as they aged and gained experience. Fidel's first business venture, other than the egg delivery route he and his brother ran in third grade, was a company he started in his basement during high school. His business partner was another kid just a few years older, The two of them created and sold hardware and educational software for the Apple II computer. And so I got to do customer support and engineering and logistics, you know, shipping things out and marketing and all these kinds of things alongside him. And I learned a lot to see inside the business. We'd even travel to trade shows and set up a booth and have our wares. Um, And so it was an incredible learning experience, as you could imagine you know, because I was doing what I loved and seeing all the other things besides engineering that it took to actually build a company. Tony Fidel created other businesses once he got to the University of Michigan. One of his companies made semiconductors that allowed the Apple II to run five or six times faster, and he actually sold the chips to Apple. One of his other companies that he launched with his computer professor and mentor, Elliot Soloway, supplied multimedia software programs for kids. Fidel credits Soloway with preparing him to have the kind of phenomenal success he's had by letting him flop. I was, you know, sophomore or whatever. He gave me a lab and all this equipment and a budget and just said, go ahead and build whatever you want. So he actually was kind of my first venture capitalist in a way, just saying, here's all the tools you need. Go off and, 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 and create whatever you want. And he would grade me on that. He had such, and he has such passion for what it was we were doing that he instilled that passion in me. He was like, just go for it, make it happen. And I would give him some wild idea and he said, go try it, go, you know, and it was, it was that next set of just knocking down uh, the fear of failure. Just go try anything. Fidel's next move, not long after graduating college in 1991, was to a company called General Magic, legendary in the history of Silicon Valley for its spectacular inventions and its spectacular failure. General Magic made some of the earliest PDAs, personal digital assistants, if you can remember back that far, though General Magic originally called them 
personal, intelligent communicators. How did Fidel land a job there? Force of will and plenty of talent, of course. I was reading all the time in the backs of magazines about the Macintosh. It was called Mac Week. Every week, because we didn't have the internet back then. So you could just, all you could get was this, this sheet. This, it was all the news about the Mac and Apple every week. And I would read it religiously. And there was a back column. And that back column was by Raines Cohen. I remember, he's an author and he's still around, a writer. And it would tell about the team that created the Mac. And it would say where they're at and what they're doing now. And they started this company called General Magic. And it's like, and it was totally secretive. And everyone's like, it, you could hear it was percolating out in the valley just by reading a thing. And I'm like, oh my, my, my heroes are there. They're doing something cool. That's, you know, we don't know what it is, but it's gotta be something cool. I gotta go find out what they're working on. I gotta work there. Because when I was starting that little company, I found myself being a very big fish in a very small pond and I wasn't learning anymore. I stagnated and every single time was failing on everything I tried because I hadn't had the experience. I hadn't seen different things because we didn't have a startup environment in Ann Arbor in the 90s. It just wasn't there. And so I wanted to go to that fountain of knowledge. I wanted to go work for my heroes. And ultimately, I got, after a lot of perseverance, into General Magic and I was employee like 30 or something like that and got to work with my heroes and learn everything. I call it my PhD. I got my PhD in the computer industry by working with the greats like Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld and Joanna Hoffman and Susan Kerr. And so these people instilled design, engineering discipline and rigor, um, how to think about products, how to think about marketing. Um, and then there was a whole other set of people there as well that ultimately Android, Andy Rubin was at General Magic. He created Android. He, was, he had the cube just two cubes away from me. And there was, you know, other people who created eBay in this company. So this was kind of this little genesis of the next generation of Silicon Valley all bonding together at General Magic. And I couldn't, and I have lifelong friends from there, so I couldn't be more happy of, you know, making that choice and, and really going out on the limb to go and get them to, to hire me. Tony Fidel's techie dreams were about to take off, but as he got ready to head for the holy land of Silicon Valley, he still had to contend with mom. What? What company? I've never heard of it. I'm like, let me explain to you. These are the greats who created the Macintosh. Why can't you just go work for some nice company like IBM or something or Microsoft? And I was like, No, I want to go work with my heroes. I want to go and, and learn from them. I don't know everything I need to know. And um, so she's crying. My dad's just kind of, he, he always saw me as kind of the person who, you know, I didn't really listen. <laughs> so I just did whatever I wanted. So he's like, okay, here he goes again. My mom's crying. And, you know, I was teared up because I was like, I always threw myself into things without, because my gut felt it. It wasn't rational. Some, a lot of the decisions I made in life, they were, how can I say, I mitigated the risk by thinking about things, making sure I, I, I thought about all the angles, but there was never a case when you knew it was the right decision. Rationally, you had to trust your gut. It's just like, you know, some people, like when they get married, when they want to get engaged, they have to trust their gut. There's nothing in the world that's going to tell you this is the right thing for your future. It's not going to be 100% guaranteed signed on the bottom line. 
And so all of these decisions, that big decisions, forks in the road that I've made in my life have come from my gut was the final, that's the way I'm gonna go. And so when you have that emotion and, that, and then you make that decision, you have emotion afterwards. And that emotion is sometimes elation, sometimes fear, sometimes what did I get myself into? And each time when I was at that fork in the road, there was always that day afterwards going, what did I just do? And it made you lift yourself up and go, I'm gonna make this. I'm gonna make it a success. I can feel it. And that's how you know, I make, make decisions and figure out where to go in life. Tony Fidel's decision did not actually lead to success, at least not in the short term. But no matter, he followed the course that felt right at the time. And in hindsight, who can argue with it? We were failing at General Magic. We said it had to die. We were failing, and I designed a new product. And I was designing it, and I was like, look, everybody, I think this is what's going to help save General Magic. And everyone's like, that's really interesting, Tony. Nice. But you know what? we got other priorities right now. We can't do that. Please get back to work. And I'm like, but this is what's going to help the company. They didn't want to hear it. So what was it? Well, it was a small pocket computer with a small keyboard. It had a modem, so you could email, and it had a touch screen. So it was like a mini little laptop. And I was like, this is what's going to, people don't want, they want a little tiny laptop that they can communicate from anywhere. And so I designed that. Nobody wanted it at General Magic. So I started, I'm like, wait a second. I'm going to go pitch it to the partners at General Magic. And Philips was one of them. And I went right to the CEO um, with the help of some other people. And I pitched him. And he goes, and I was 25 at the time. I had no idea what I did. I had, besides my small startup company in Ann Arbor and before, I had never run teams or anything. And the CEO Philips goes, I like the idea. Let's do it. I was like, what? I was like, be careful what you wish for. And literally the next day, because this was my gut, and I, I was like, wait a second, what did I just do? And I was like, so nervous, so worried. I was like, and now I have, I'm gonna have to get a team of 150 people and put together this project. I have no idea if I can do it. <laughs> and so I, well, I once again threw myself in, as I just rose up and I said, I'm gonna use my resource and everything to build this. And, um, so that was great. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to get over this decision. And then the very first day I walk into the Phillips offices, they asked for a drug test. I was like, what? A drug test? And I was like, wait a second, I can't hire anybody in Silicon Valley if you ask for that. And then I go, I'm going to make you a deal. I'll take the drug test. But you, if I pass, which I did, obviously, if I pass, you will not require anybody in my team that I hired to take the drug test. That was the deal. And they said, okay, because that was the chain of trust. So I was able to clear that. So that was like, whoa, wait, this is a big old company. The next thing I get into my office, it was built in 1950. It was dark paneling. Every single one was like, you know, these little like trophy rooms. And no one talked to each other. It was like, you know, you came from a place where there's cubes and people and, you know, they were, they were like gophers everywhere coming out of these cubes. Hey, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. It's just this lifeblood of people. And then in this, you're like in this little tiny office going to defeat the world and nobody's around and you're like, what did I do? Well, anyways, it got a lot better and I helped to change a bunch of the culture and everything because I'm like, knock down the walls, put up cubes, let's get some life in here. And, um, but Phillips really was, you know, it was old. And we created a startup inside this company 
But when we, whenever we went outside, it was like we were talking to f different languages. Even though they spoke Dutch and English, they just didn't understand. Like when we were saying, well, we need open offices, or we need this, or we need great marketing for that. All they want to do is sell TVs. And so that's where I learned in life that even with the most resources, you can design and build anything. But if you, you don't have the right team behind you to sell and market it and, and really do it, you're not going to have a great success. So we were a critical success in the industry for what we built, but we were a failure from a business perspective because we didn't know how to sell it. Tony Fidel was getting better at navigating his career towards success. But in the whirling dervish world of technology, his gut was as important as ever in making decisions about where to go next. And nothing would test his instincts as much as his move from Philips to Apple in 2000. The story he tells gives me agita every time I listen to it, starting with the call he got as he was waiting in line for the chairlift on a ski trip to Colorado. Hello, this is John Rubenstein. I'm like, I didn't know who he was. And then the conversation started, and lo and behold, the iPod came out less than a year later. John Rubenstein was the head of hardware for Apple at the time, and the strategist who, with Steve Jobs, helped turn the failing company's fortunes around. At first, Rubenstein brought Tony Fidel in as a consultant, but pretty soon, Fidel was feeling more than a little pressure to join the company full-time. So the first six weeks um, of my consultancy, it was six or eight weeks, it was design, go and learn everything about these chips, luckily about the chips, the marketplace, put together this whole overview of the business. And so I did that. And did the best I could do in six weeks. It's a lot of work for more or less one person to put this all together and present it to Steve. So, um, and I had some help with some other people at Apple, but they were helping to make sure the pre presentation looked good for Steve. They wanted to make sure this meeting was going to go well. So I presented a styrofoam model that created and, and, and a lot of the, the bill of materials, the things that you build the, the iPod with kind of the business angles, how many we could sell, those kinds of stuff, how big the team would need to be schedules. And at the end, Steve picked up the, this styrofoam block that was the iPod. He was like, let's do this. And he goes, now we have to hire you. And, and John turns to me and he goes, he turns to me and look, goes like this. He goes, I got this, don't worry. So then what began a three-week intense battle going, look, I have a startup, John. I can't leave this startup. I can't leave this team in a lurch. I need to, you know, do what's right for them. And he's like, he's like, no, no, come to Apple. You're going to do this. I go, look, I've been at Philips. I've been at other big companies. Nine out of 10 projects that get started get killed at those kinds of companies. And he goes, no, 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 this one's going to ship. I said, I don't believe it. I go, and then once you ship, remember, Apple was not the Apple you know today. Apple back then was... At best case, um, what was it, $250 million, $250 million in the bank and $500 million in debt. And they were break-even quarter to quarter. They had less than 1% market share for Macintoshes in the U.S., not in the world, 1% market share. Everyone says it's a dying company. So I'm like, wait a second, John. This company wants to do this. I've seen all these projects die. Are you going to actually have the funds to actually market it when you're under attack? Like... Why should I join this company? 
So I said, and I talked to other people around and I started going, okay, well this startup thing I have is not going so well. I can bring some of the people with me. Maybe this is a chance I should shake. This is this gut reaction. Like everything in your brain logically goes, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And my gut's going, maybe there's something here. So I said to John, I go, look, I've talked to a bunch of people. I'm starting, starting to understand how you guys work here. I need to talk to Steve. So he arranged, arranged for me to, to, to chat with Steve. And I was like, Steve, I went, I'm like, what about Sony? I'm like, they're number one, they own every audio category. And he was like, we're gonna beat them, watch. I go, wait a second, Sony, do you understand this? He's like, I'm telling you, we're gonna beat them. And he had such confidence, I said, yeah, I think we can build the product, but will you sell and market it? And he goes, and he, and he said to me, he goes, if you build this and it's a quality product, I will put every dollar of Apple marketing behind this to watch this thing go, and I'm patient and I will make this happen. You just get this done. And I was like, well, that's a pretty bold statement coming to see me. And I hadn't, you know, I had heard lots of stories from my general magic friends who work with Steve, right? I'm like, can I trust him? What's and my, my gut's going, okay, this is starting to feel better, but I'm not ready yet. So while I'm talking to Steve, John had set up a big meeting for me to r- reveal because he wanted me to just say yes, and I was supposed to reveal this secret project to a, a, a big set of Apple execs and, and people who should be in the know about the program, because it's so secret at Apple. So he sets up this big meeting. I'm still talking to Steve. It's now I'm 20 minutes late to this meeting. There's 20, 25 people in it. So, so Steve and I hang up. I walk in this room late. Everybody's just sitting there. They don't, they never, except for two people, they never met me. They were like, who is this guy? Why are we waiting for him? What is he going to tell us about? I walk in the door, scowls on their faces, and John looks at me and goes, so you're going to take the job in front of all of these people? And I turn and I look and I, I was just confused. And he goes, so are you taking the job right here, right now? This meeting will be canceled if you don't take it. And I was like, what? And I turned to the whole audience who I didn't know. And I said, does this happen in every Apple interview? Is this how you do closing? So it broke the ice and everybody was like chuckling under the breath because they were also shocked and stunned because they didn't know what was going on. And I'm like, in my brain, you're going really fast. And here's the gut, right? And the rational are like fighting right now. Both sides of my shoulders are screaming in my ears. And I'm looking at John and I'm looking in the eye and I'm like, I there's only two ways this is going to go down. Either I'm going to go, no, screw you, I'm going to get what I want, or yes, and trust that was going to happen. And I'm like, the first thing I don't want to do is make my potential new boss look dumb in front of all these people. And I was like, if it's not working, I can always leave. And I was like, okay. So I looked him straight in the eye and I said, yes. Then what happens? I go and sit down in my seat. I was in such shock, I couldn't even put a word together for 15 minutes. I just sat there in the room like this, and Stan, Stan Eng, who is the guy who was helping me create the presentation and everything with Steve, Stan took over and started talking to people about the design and everything else. But I was just shocked. I didn't know what I did, and for the next two days, I was an utter mess trying to figure out, did I do the right thing or whatever? And so hopefully not a lot of other people have that kind of a a job 
um, you know, interview and, and close. But uh, that was mine at Apple. The truth is, going to work for Apple to build a music player was a great fit for Fidel, as his gut told him, and as he told interviewer Gail Eichenthal. You know, growing up sometime in Detroit and everything, that was like Detroit Rock City, right? So I went to concerts when I was young, and I loved music, and I learned to play the piano horribly. I was not a good piano player. Um, bang on the keys, bang, 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 bang. So that wasn't the thing, but I loved to listen to it and learn a lot about it. And in college, before DJs were DJs like we know them today, I would just play stuff for parties and stuff like that, and I continued to do it. And even as I came to Silicon Valley, I'd do more and more of that stuff because I loved it so. And I had to start carrying around all these CD cases, you know, thousands of CDs, because vinyl went out, vinyl's back in style now, but vinyl went out, carrying all these CDs, and the gear and everything. And I just didn't want, I love music, but I hated all the struggle to, to, to do this, to, to find them, to carry it, move it, to find the songs I love, to put them on. And I had always thinking, because we were doing these handhelds, and when they, we started putting headphone jacks on them for audiobooks. And I'm like, wait a second. These, these handhelds, one day, if they have enough memory, they could be great for music. Lo and behold, then MP3 files came, and then some MP3 players came. And I wanted to make a really big jukebox. So I was making a kind of a rack mount a CD player. You'd have a CD and a hard drive inside. And we were ripping the, the songs, the, MP, the MP3s would come out of the CDs and put them on the hard drive. And that was the, the genesis. So I was making small stuff, my love of music, and building this box at that startup I was telling you about. Then it all came together into the iPod. Tony Fidel is sometimes referred to in the media as the father of the iPod, but he's careful to give credit to the many colleagues who contributed to its creation and its success. Like any elaborate product, it's not always clear exactly who did what, but Fidel says he essentially designed the mechanical and electrical inner workings. Then, with Jeff Robin, came up with the interface. And it was Johnny Ives with his team, who designed the outside look and feel of it, that sleek combination of metal and white behind plastic. Fidel says they were all joined at the hip, really, figuring out how to make the smallest, easiest to use, most beautiful thing they could. Some people have the mistaken belief, Fidel says, that there was some grand master plan devised by Steve Jobs in the year 2000 to change the world with digital music and video downloads. Not so, not at all. It really happened by virtue of the CD player actually getting integrated into a Mac. And people started playing tunes on a Mac. And then from there, they were like, wait a second, we could take those tunes off and create mix CDs. Okay, so they started making mix CDs. So they'd rip the tracks off the CD, put them in iTunes, and then print a new disc with those like just like you made mixed cassette tapes. Then they were like, wait a second, I can only fit 10 or 20 songs on that CD. Why can't I get more songs? And MP3 players started at the time. And all these MP3 players were tiny. They were either held 15 songs or they held 100 songs, but the, it took like a day to put the songs on it. Like all of these things were wrong with them. And that's when they contacted me saying, we're looking at all these MP3 players. We want to let people take their tunes on the go from iTunes, but they're all bad. We think there's an Apple way of doing it. Can you design that for us? 
So that happened. So that's when the iPod came out, which was a thousand songs in your pocket. It's one of the best marketing lines ever. I strive every day when we try to, when we try to market our new products to get a tagline that good. Because it, it says everything in just a few words. Then from there, we're like, well, what can we do next? And we're like, well, we can put more songs. We did that. We can make it a little smaller, made it better, better. We started that. And then we go, wait a second. It's now time we can put photos on it because we'll put a color screen on it because it's cheap enough. We'll put a color screen and we can store all those photos. So we put photos on it. Then we go, wait a second. People want to digitally download music. The, the labels are failing because they can't, everyone's stealing music. Let's give them a, uh, an alternative where they can spend a dollar a song, get the song they love, and put it on. They don't have to rip the CD, put it on the iPod. They could just download it really quick because there was enough internet bandwidth to the home and there was enough storage and the music companies really wanted to sell their music digitally. They hated before that, but now they're willing because they were losing so much money. So then the music store was created. Then after that, the video store was created and we made video iPods and so on and so forth. So all of these unfoldings happened over time as we ran into a new problem and a new problem. We didn't have the cash, the team, the technology even to be able to have a grand master plan back then and just implement it. It was literally heads down, seeing the next problem, solving it, solving it, solving it. Can't think about the iPod without thinking about its beautiful, elegant, simple design. And it is as much a work of design as it is of engineering. And that obviously was part of the culture there. Yeah, absolutely. Design, design not just of the product itself, but design of the marketing design ultimately of the retail stores, all of the different customer touch points, I was able to watch that and learn. At General Magic, we learned how to do products. At Apple, you learned how to really build experiences, and design experiences. Even the opening, the ceremony of opening a box and taking the products out and learning and, and, and using them for the first time. It's kind of like, you know, I don't want to sound, because it's nowhere near like this because I've had kids, but it's that first time when you see your baby for the first time you have it in your hands and you're like, oh my God, it's so precious, it's so wonderful. Well, these products are nothing like a, a child, but we try to, you know, go for those kinds of emotions for people so it feels really precious to them because they just spend their hard-earned money on these things. What is it going to give to them? We the blast masters blasting up the jungle. Rewind! Cutie, cutie, make sure you move your booty. Another beautifully designed and executed part of the experience, with a capital E, was the ad campaign. Remember those iconic silhouettes of people grooving to the music on their iPods? You can watch them all, one after another, on YouTube. It's actually great fun. Well, interviewer Gail Eichenthal wanted to know what tunes Tony Fidel first grooved to on his own first iPod. Well, for me, you know, I'm a, I, I love coming from, you know, Detroit. You know, I'm, I'm very much of the hard rock stuff. So, you know, Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, that was kind of the thing that I always might go to when I want to just hear something that gets me going. And those were the very first, the very first tunes I listened to. I listen to all kinds of stuff, but you know, sometimes those are just those comfort classics that just get you going. See where some of your energy comes from. <laughs> Absolutely, music is a big part of my life. Hey, baby, when you walk that way, watch on it 
the next revolutionary product Tony Fidel embarked on for Apple basically ate the first product. Yeah, it totally cannibalized it. As Steve said, either we eat our young or someone else does. So which is it going to be? And very bold um, to be able to, you know, we saw the threat of cell phones and feature phones, camera phones starting to play music. And we knew everybody was carrying those and they weren't going to carry two devices. So we went through kind of a two and a half, three year, you know, design process of trying to put in a phone inside of an iPod that didn't work. There was the issue of the track wheel, such a distinguishing feature of the iPod. So you could select a name from a, a list, you know, it would be easy, just like you select a song. Okay, I can select somebody and call them. But then it came down to dialing. And it was such a horrible experience. It was like an old rotary phone. You know, I grew up for a few years on rotary phones and you hated them, right? Um, so that was the thing that put the bullet in the head of that product, was we just couldn't make the rotary phone and text entry work. So then we had to go and look for another technology. Obviously, you couldn't do keyboards, and we had this new touchscreen technology, multi-touch. It was the size of a ping pong table. And Steve pulls me into the secret room and goes, this is touch, this is multi-touch. Play with it. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And it was a big Mac. You know, it was a projected Mac on this ping pong table and moving things around. He goes, see that? I want you to put that on the phone. I was like, it's that big. So after a few weeks of learning about what it was and everything, I was like, yes, we can put a multi-touch on a phone. The issue, though, is we're going to have to start a touchscreen company to do so because no one in the world had ever built any of this technology. And we did have to do that. So it's not just making all the apps and the phone itself and all the other pieces of the puzzle. We also had to make another company just to supply the touchscreen components necessary to build it. So we were doing all of this stuff at the same time. It was an insane, awesome project to work on. One of the keys to their success in building the iPhone, Tony Fidel says, is that the team stayed humble despite the mega success of the iPod. They had the wind at their back for sure, but to use one of Tony Fidel's favorite expressions, they remembered to stay beginners. Stay beginners, well, that's a term that I, 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 I learned from Steve. And it was all about understanding that when you were in a business that we're in, we get so caught up in our own lingo. We get so caught up in trying to impress the people down the hall about our engineering prowess or our design prowess that we forget about the people who we're selling to. We forget about the, the person who just unwrapped that box and un trying to understand how it works and making it so simple for them. So if you take really powerful technology and wrap it in a, in a, a very simple and clear interface and, and simple ways of using it, you can empower people and make those beginners feel like they've, they've 10x their capabilities. They have superpowers now. And so staying beginners was making sure you wore that beginner hat each day when you came in and remembering those customers, those, those people who want to be empowered and giving them the tools they can use to succeed and feel good about it. The lesson is one of the great gifts that Steve Jobs left behind, according to Fidel. And it's among the qualities that have been largely overlooked by all the books and films that have portrayed Steve Jobs as a pretty nasty guy. Well, the first thing to realize is don't believe everything you see in movies and read in books. You know, there is no way both my wife, who worked for Steve, directly, I worked for Steve, could do that for 10 years 
if there wasn't some amazing stuff that came out of it. It wasn't like we were getting whipped every day or anything. It had nothing to do with that. We were dedicated, we were passionate. He was passionate. He wanted the best for the company, for the products, for our customers. And when you're in that, there's a creative tension. And he emotionally would show that passion sometimes. Sometimes it was, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. You know, you hear about the negatives, but you don't hear about all the positives and all the great things he did for you. It did for the individual as well as the company and all that stuff. So it was always a balance. And those bad days were not all very often, but they did happen because typically, yeah, you might have made a mistake. Don't do that again. Or we weren't thinking about it right, or somebody was falling down on the job, or whatever the case may be. That's when it came out, is when someone didn't show respect for the mission they were on. When you didn't show respect for the rest of your teammates and for the thing we're trying to build, that's when there was a problem. Not when we're falling, when we fail, when we tried really hard. And if we showed we tried really hard, then that was just an option, just like we, the iPod phone was a failure. No one got killed over that, it was more just a, you know, okay, we tried our best, we move on. We tried our best, we move on. It's when you were, when you didn't do what was right and you failed from a, because you didn't put your heart and soul into it and you let the team down, that's when there was a problem. But yes, he did have his bad days, but not usually for without reason. And that 80th floor view that Jobs talked about at the beginning of this podcast, Tony Fidel says it was remarkable to see it in action. I, th I think about that a lot um, because I remember some specific instances where Steve, because of that ability, was able to break through some amazingly hard problems that we had many people working on. And he wasn't always mired in so many of the details, so he could really step back and not worry about the intricacies of implementation and how hard it might be. He would just look at the logical way it should be done and what was the best thing for the customer and then push you on it. So there's one perfect example. Um, I can't get into the exact of what we were talking about, but I can tell you how we were talking about it, which was for about three months, we were trying to break this really hard problem. And we had teams of people working on it from every single angle. And after three months, we finally presented him our options. We had five different options. None of them were great. And we're like, Steve, here are our options that we've been able to come up with. And there's a room of 20 people. And then we talked through each one. And we're like, but none of them feel quite right. And Steve, never being a part of this for three months, he took a step back and he goes, did you ever think about it this way? Because he took a step back and changed something way up here. He changed something way up in the system and all of a sudden everything got solved. And we were like, we all looked around the table at each other and go, oh my. You know, and you're, you just kind of go, oh, that kind of thing. And so that was, that was his talent and allowed us and has really instilled in me to do the same thing. Hopefully to, you know, the same level he could, but it was really inspiring to watch. There's a term that's often been used to describe Steve Jobs' ability to convince people they could accomplish ludicrous things. Reality field distortion. Journalist Gail Eichenthal asked Tony Fidel what he thought about that during their interview. My wife always says, if you want to achieve something, you have to believe it. And Steve would believe something so passionately that, and, and, and it was 
how can I say, it was educated. It was educated belief. It wasn't just this, you know, you know tr just throw caution to the wind belief. It was educated belief that we could do something. And that ability to get people convinced that this was the right way to go, um, that it was, yeah, scary and, and it's so unconventional, but this is the right thing. That's what made these discoveries happen, these inventions happen. And you do have to distort reality if you want to change the reality we're living in. And people are like, they're so locked into the everyday that they forget there could be a whole nother thing that they're not seeing over here. And his job was to push us. Don't habituate. Go back, peel back all of your, you know, preconceived ideas and notions and, and you know, calluses that have built up over time that may cloud your vision. Go back to the essence. You need to look other places to find that disruptive invention that could change the world. He saw them before we did, and he would push us to those, those unknown areas. Tony Fidel found that next disruptive invention, but only after leaving Apple. He and his wife had two kids under two, and they felt the intensity of life at Apple wasn't compatible with family life. But also, as Steve Jobs had always preached, Everyone needs new experiences and new ways of seeing to create something game-changing. Listen to this excerpt from his talk to students in 1982. The key thing is that if you're going to make connections which are innovative, you, 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 to connect two experiences together, that you have to not have the same bag of experiences as everyone else does, or else you're going to make the same connections, and then you won't be innovative, and then nobody will give you an award. So what you've got to do... <laughs> is get different experiences um, than, than the normal course of events. And one of the, the, the funny things about being bright is everyone puts you on this path, you know, to go to high school, go to college. I've heard about some kid that's 14 on his way to Stanford. And that's great. That's sort of out of the ordinary. Um, but you might want to think about going to Paris and being a poet for a few years, you know, or you might want to go to a third world country. I'd highly advise that and see people and lepers with their hands falling off and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's very much so worth doing. Um, you know, fall in love with two people at once. You know? You... Walt Disney took LSD, do you know that? He did, once. And that's where the idea for Fantasia came from. It's true. And... You can go hear stories about all these people, and the key thing that comes through is that they had a variety of experiences which they could draw upon in order to try to solve a problem or attack a particular dilemma in a, in a kind of unique way. And so one of the things that you'll get a lot of pressure to do uh, is to go in one very clear direction and believe in God and all that other stuff. And that's great, but don't uh, ever walk by a Zen Buddhist because of that. Sit down and talk and buy him lunch. Well, Tony Fidel didn't say during his interview whether lunch with a Zen Buddhist had anything to do with his next creation, but it makes perfect sense that he had to get back to the world outside of Apple to see around new corners. And what Fidel was able to see was the need for a better thermostat. Really? Yeah. It may not sound as sexy as the iPod or the iPhone, but in fact, his Nest thermostat cracked open the doorway to new thinking about the home and its devices. During the iPhone development period, my wife and I said we were going to have a family, and we said, let's design a home for, 
for them. So I wanted to make a really green home for our family. I also want to make it connected because this iPhone that we were developing, I was like, wait a second, this thing is going to become the primary interface to your world, whether you're in your home using it or you're outside your home, it's going to be the primary way you're going to interact with the physical world. How is a home going to change when it's green and connected? And that was the part of the design that led us to seeing all the problems. You know, given my grandfather and teaching me all about the different systems of plumbing and these things, I dove deep into every system design. Heating, cooling, plumbing, uh, energy, water, all of this stuff. And started finding all of these problems. And coming from this, oh, you know, I know how to build electronics and everything else. I was like, oh, they must be building products the way we build them, but in these industries. They were building them like they were built in the 80s. They had no idea how to build next generation consumer appliances of products for the home. I was like, huh. So green, 50% of energy is used, consumed by your thermostat, is, you know, is controlled by your thermostat. You know, going to Paris with my family between Apple and Nest allowed me to actually see that all these homes had problems, right? Because we lived in different homes. In France, in Spain, in Hawaii, in Latin America, they all had the same problems. I'm like, no one solved this. It was another one of those things that said, oh my God, this is something that needs to get fixed. And it was only if I would have got out of my element, get out of Silicon Valley, which is a wonderful place, to actually get that, gain that perspective and that experience to then galvanize you and get that gut feeling to move forward with confidence. I read that you had visited Disneyland's Tomorrowland and saw the Monsanto uh, display. <laughs> yeah. So in 1977-76, something like that, I went to Disney World with our, my parents and my grandfather. Um, that was a long time ago. And um, I remember being in awe of seeing this exhibit. And I think the exhibit was actually created in the late 60s. So it was kind of old, getting old and tattered. And it was the vision of the future where it was one button and your food would pop out of this weird container of already prepared. It was very space age because everything was about space, right, when it was created. And it, everything just magically happened for you. And I was drawn in by that. But what's really interesting is in the 80s, that same vision got sold to us again from various other companies. And then in the 90s, it was again. And then in 2000s, it was yet again. And nothing of this stuff ever materialized. And it's like, someone's selling the wrong dream. They're, they're, they're going for something that is not about families and not about home and how it works. It's something, some tech geek wizardry. It has nothing to do with how we live. And I was like, let's rewrite what the future of the home looks like. And it started with the humble thermostat. It's been written that you focused on sort of unlovable objects. <laughs> Unloved. Well, you know, in the 50s when, they, when the first, um, you know, Henry Dreyfus design came out for a thermostat, it was iconic. It was actually beloved. People were like, it's easy to use. It looks nice on my wall for that period of time and everything. And then what happened over time is no one cared about design. They just cared about cost. They didn't even care about usability. And I said, wait a second. That's where they, how they became unloved, because no one put any love in them. And therefore, if you don't put love and passion into your product, no one's going to extract that out of them. And so we put tons of love and attention into our first product, and guess what? It came back 10x from the community. And so that was what's wonderful to see. So you can take an unloved thing 
and turn it into something lovable by adding the love, by adding the passion to it. So this is a thermostat that's smart. It figures out who you are and what your lifestyle is. You know, people think that, it, you know, smart, like that was the other thing of Monsanto. Everything was about the smart home. And every time I heard the word smart attached to anything means it's pretty dumb because no one knows what it really does. They just add smart as a, you know, a prefix to say, oh, you must buy this because it's smart. It just, no, if they can't tell you what it does and why it does it, don't buy it just because it says smart. So, so I wanted to make sure that we weren't smart. What we were doing was we were learning. The way you know more about your surroundings is by learning about them. And so all the thermostat did was very simply watch. You know, in the morning you turn it to a certain temperature. When you leave, you turn it down. When you come home, you, you know, turn it up and go to bed again. So just a few days like that, and we're like, wait a second, you've already told us how you like it in your house. You've just showed us in three days. Why do you have to program? Why you... So we just learn the things you tell us to do, and we just do it like any good assistant, just record it back. It's that simple. But everybody else was coming from the programming. Tell us what it is. Make a structured schedule. Like, no one knows what their schedule is, especially in a busy household. So why can't the assistant learn and adapt as you change? And that was the, you know, besides making it beautiful and, you know, loved again, let's make it not smart. Let's make it thoughtful. I think you've also uh, used the word delightful. delightful. And it is really fun. It's a fun thing to look at. It's fun to look at, it's fun to interact with. We get videos all the time of kids using them, saying look at the leaf to try to get better energy conservation. We've had eight-year-olds show videos of them installing it. If my grandfather could only see all these eight-year-olds putting in thermostats around the world, you know, I think he would be proud. But, um, but then we had 80-year-old people doing it. You know, and it's everything in between. Because, and it was just a thermostat that no one cared about just a year, a year previous. No one cared. When Tony Fidel sold Nest Labs to Google for $3.2 billion, it made news. That was in 2014. Fidel, who is still the CEO of Nest, explains what was behind the sale other than the size of the offer. You know, I have been in the Valley now at that point, almost 23 years or so. And I've seen the ups and downs and the cycles of the market and how things go. And I also know what it takes to make a really big, influential company, especially when you're trying to do something so complex and um, integrated um, in what we're trying to do. And you need to have strong arms around you to help you grow and build that and be patient. And investors are not always like that. You know, the street, as we know, Wall Street, whatever, if, um, venture capitalists, they're fickle. They run hot and they run cold. You need somebody who's going to be there. And we had to think whether we're going to take more outside money or if we were going to join up, get married with another company. And at the end of the day, I said, it's not about the money. It's about the mission. And who has the technology? Who has the patience? Who has these things to make the mission successful? And that was naturally um, Larry and Google. You had already dated Yes, we had dated, yes. We got married in, um, two years ago, but uh, we had dated for about two years before that because Google was an investor in our company. Uh, we were Google Ventures. And so the marriage happened um, in a very um, proper way as opposed to what typical corporate marriages happen, which is it's over a weekend. You know, let's go to Vegas. I meet you for the first time 24 hours. Let's get married. That's not the right way to do these kinds of things in, in my experience. 
Assuming it's a happy and stable marriage, what will their offspring look like? In other words, what does Tony Fidel imagine the connected home of the future to be 10, 20, 30 years from now? I'm trying to make sure that the home doesn't turn into just a bunch of screens and gadgets everywhere. You know, home is about socializing with your friends and family inside of this structure, outside of the structure. It's about the people. It's not about the things in the home, or especially not displays and gadgets. So my goal is to try to make all of these assistant capabilities and all these things to be blended into the walls. You know, when we first got electricity and gas, you could see all the pipes running inside the structures because people retrofitted that onto the structure when electricity was invented. But then over time, what happened? They all got buried into the walls, right? It became unseen. You just have one little control, but you don't know where all this stuff. My hope is that's going to be the same with this technology. It's going to recede into the structure, trying to keep everybody connected and talking to each other, not with screens between them. These days, at least at the time this episode is being recorded, Tony Fidel is working a little on the Google Glasses project while still running Nest Labs. And I feel pretty confident in saying that Tony Fidel has safely reached the 80th floor alongside his mentor, Steve Jobs. I think we'll end with one final point from Jobs. It seems only fitting. One of the, the things that, that I had um, in my mind growing up, I don't know how it got there, was but that the world was sort of something that happened just outside your peepers. And you didn't, you didn't really try to change it, you just sort of tried to find your place in it and, and have the best life you could. And it would all just go on out there, and there were some pretty bright people running it. And as you start to interact with some of these people, you find they're not a lot different than you. Um, the people actually making these decisions every day that are sort of running the world are you you know are not really very much different than you and they might have a little more uh judgment in some areas but basically they're the same and once you realize that you start to feel you have a responsibility to do something about it because the world's in, in pretty bad shape right now and uh i guess one of the things that motivates a lot of people that i've seen that, that actually get out and do something in in any different field is that we all sort of, uh, you know, eat food that other people cook and wear clothing that other people make and speak a language that other people evolved and use someone else's mathematics. And, and we're sort of taking from this giant pool constantly. And the, the most ecstatic thing in the whole world is actually put something back into that pool. What Steve Jobs and Tony Fidel created together has made that pool a good bit deeper. They changed the way we listen to music, the way we communicate, and the way we move through our daily lives. And hey, without them, there wouldn't be podcasts. So raise a glass. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. Thanks to the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation for funding what it takes.